Hello all, warmest welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the North Wales one-person true crime show that looks for the darkest deeds, the cases that stick with and that you may not be familiar with, from the length and breadth of Ireland and the UK. I'm the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, Paul. You guys are the enthusiasts who keep the show moving forward, so new friends welcome and old friends welcome back. I especially hope that the episode finds everybody listening both safe and well, and if you or any of your loved ones are suffering at all, then you and they have my thoughts. I hope also that you aren't going too stir-crazy stuck indoors. People do start getting a bit tetchy with it all, don't they? Being unnaturally stuck in together. And it's understandable, of course. I mean, it's something we've never known or faced before, isn't it? But it is for a reason all this, it's not a jolly holiday, it's serious and a lockdown is an extreme but in the circumstances necessary way to try and save lives. So clowns that you read of who are out having bloody barbecues with friends and who disregard things and piss off to try to get to the beach at the first sign of sun or choose that point in their life to walk up Snowden, I can't understand the mentality, I honestly can't. Any fines or punishment that you get for acting such a selfish bellend, then you totally deserve it. Just bugger off home and stay there. There are plenty of things you can do at home. Get the jobs that you've put off done. Clean up. I mean, my house has never been so tidy, I tell you. And keep it calm. This isn't just a test of nations, but it's a test of people also. So whilst I am abiding the lockdown... It's business as usual here on The Enthusiast, and last episode we covered the tale of the Portsmouth Casanova murder, which I thank you for the feedback about, and can you see why it's been one of my favourite tales to have ever covered here on the show. What an ensemble cast of unlikable people in it though. I know we're talking about a brutal murder here, and that of course shouldn't be forgotten of course, but the section of the population of Portsmouth that was the focus, well... I thought they just all sounded vile people really, perhaps selfish is a better word, and honestly I found it hard to drum up any sympathy there at all, except for the children of the families concerned. But it is quite a tale that one isn't it, another that kind of jumped out at me and screamed Patreon back when I came across it, and it's one that I'm glad that you guys got to hear anyway. On the subject of Patreon, thanks this week to both returning and new Patreon supporters, with shout-outs going out to Ashley, Amy Hussain, Athena Goldberg, Margot Patterson, Phil Clark and Debbie and Paul Forrester. Cheers, you lovely folks. Your support is very much appreciated and stuff's gone out to some of you. I'm just not sure when it will get to some, however, as things such as the post office, at least the ones by me anyway, are understandably running a bit of a watered-down service in the current climate. But they have gone out anyway. I know that I've shared some Corona bonus episodes in past weeks for all, but there are still several episodes available for Patreon subscribers that haven't seen the light of day on the show as yet. You've got the likes of The Beauty in the Bikini, The Little Girls Who Never Came Home, and The Rotten Rose of Devon, to name just a few of them. The latest, bonus episode number 27, Enough Rope, is also out now, with number 28 coming on later this month. If you guys want access to these or other tiers where I can send you things, then it's easier to do than working out just why social distancing is so important right now and can be yours for little more than a good old Poundland sex toy costs, helping to pass lockdowns since 2020. 
I know before you think it, it's something that I would never live read for, that is. Just putting that out there. Just head on over to the Patreon site and look up the show there, complete with the podcast suffix. Never forget the podcast bit. Or there is, as ever, a link to the show's Patreon in the episode show notes this week, where I've done all of that for you. So before we crack on with the episode then, which does find us beginning this series multi-episode arc as long promised, looking at the crimes of an individual that you really just couldn't cover in one episode, once again I'm pleased to give a short word from the first of this week's sponsor of the show, ExpressVPN. Now privacy and security is of the utmost importance today, where so much of what we do is done online, and this is where virtual private networks are a bit of a godsend. And a great tip I was introduced to recently by ExpressVPN is that VPNs can be used to unlock TV series and movies only available in other countries. Just imagine how many libraries that gives you access to, and in this current climate as well. Sounds good that, doesn't it? Well, that's what friends of the show ExpressVPN are offering you. Plus, by using the unique link expressvpn.com forward slash truecrime, as True Crime Enthusiast podcast listeners, they're offering you an extra three months of ExpressVPN free. What ExpressVPN does is hide your IP address so you control where streaming thinks that you're located. With a choice of almost 100 different countries worldwide, imagine the Netflix libraries you control through there, but also your Spotify's and your Hulu. ExpressVPN works with almost all streaming services. It's compatible with all manner of devices from smart TVs to your phone, meaning that you can either watch on the go or comfortably at home. And it's fast, it's buffer and lag free, you can even stream in high definition, no problem. All you do is simply find the stuff that you want to watch, say for example, you're across the pond and you want to watch Blackadder on UK Netflix. Can't fault you there at all, fantastic choice. Then you simply open the VPN app, Once there, you swap your location to that of the host country, simply refresh the streaming provider, and that's all she wrote, it's as simple as that. So to watch what you want from wherever you want, whilst being protected online and supporting the show as well, head over to the unique link expressvpn.com forward slash truecrime for this fantastic offer from ExpressVPN with three months free thrown in. This week then, we finally got to multi-episode arc time. Now I'm unsure how many episodes exactly that the tale will take up, because it is a bit of a case, and I do want to do it proper justice. For the next few episodes here on the show then, we're back predominantly to the early 1990s, and back down to the smoke, to hear the exploits of one of the most disturbed, dangerous individuals that we've come across to date on the show. They really, really do get worse, don't they? But this one, wow, something else. The episodes also won't run along a timeline as such. We may time jump a little bit, but there's a reason for that and hope that as the arc progresses, it'll become self-explanatory. Although anonymity of the persons concerned with the crimes and events mentioned this week will be maintained, the events themselves will be described in as much detail as possible. As always, this isn't to sensationalise but I think it's very important to paint as accurate a picture of this offender as possible, and we like detail here on The Enthusiast anyway. The episode this week contains details of events and crimes of a sexual nature that some listeners may find disturbing or distressing, 
So as always, please use your discretion whilst you're listening in guys. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiasts this week we begin a story arc that overall I'm calling Maniac with an episode I've entitled The Beast of the Green Chain. Spanning a 50 mile stretch from the River Thames to Nuned Cemetery in Southwark in a daisy chain type layout, the Green Chain Walk is an interlinking network of footpaths encompassing almost 300 of the open spaces and heritage sites within the South East London area following the South East London sections of the River Thames. There's no designated you must start here spot, the chain can be joined from numerous places including Erith Riverside or the Thames Barrier, and the entire trail is broken down into 11 sections, making it more manageable for the dedicated rambler. There are options galore for linear or circular walks throughout it, and a whole range of sites and attractions to be found throughout these within the walk itself. From the 18th century Gothic folly of Seven Drood Castle, if that's your thing, to the Horniman Museum and Gardens in Forest Hill, outside which, pop trivia quiz, stands one of only a handful of totem poles in the UK, a 20-foot exhibit that was carved in 1985 as part of the American Arts Festival. It's a popular chain with dog walkers, picnicking families and outdoor enthusiasts all year round, and the full list of walks and their sections can be found in a link in the episode show notes, with even a downloadable PDF certificate you can have to say you've completed the full 50 miles, again if that's your thing. So, although some of the route does take you inevitably through streets and metropolitan areas, the vast majority of it is open space, as it winds through various woods and parks and commons, and one of these is known locally as Winds Common, which forms the eastern part of the larger Plumstead Common in the Royal Borough of Greenwich. It's in a detached house on Plumstead's Purrit Road, just off Winds Common, that our tale begins back on the warm morning of Thursday the 10th of August 1989. At 30 years old, attractive blonde-haired Julia, that's not a real name as we've said, but in texts that I use for research for the episode, she's referred to as Julia, so we'll follow suit here, found herself as a well-managing single parent, a relationship with the father of her children long since over. She'd managed to buy the detached house that the family had once shared at the top of Purrit Road in South East 18, which runs down from Winds Common into the more urban and commercial part of Plumstead, and had remained there with the young family as the house was an appealing place for them to live due to its close proximity to Winds Common, just a stone's throw away from the house just across Wind Common Road. Although Julia's house was in a state of some cosmetic disrepair, it had nevertheless been a happy home to the family. The children even had a sizeable rear garden to play in that was separated from the common by a chain-link fence. However, as with the rest of the property, the fence was by that time in a state of poor repair, having come away from its posts in part, which gave easy access and egress to the garden for anyone who wanted to. The day of Thursday the 10th of August 1989 began as any other normal day for Julia and her family and by 8.30am Julia was up, had made breakfast for both of her kids, aged at the time 8 and 5 years old and had let the family cat not out of the bag but out of the back door, leaving the door open in the warm August morning so that the cat could come and go as it pleased and to let some fresh summer air into the stuffy house. 
leaving her children downstairs having their breakfast, with no rush to get them dressed and ready and off to school, as it was the school summer holidays. Julia then went upstairs to start getting herself ready for the day. She'd already showered leisurely and washed her hair, and had now gone up to her bedroom to begin drying it. So as normal as ever a start to the day really, apart from when she heard a bedroom door opening and thinking it was simply one of her kids with the million and one questions kids have for their parents each day, instead turned to see a man stood in her bedroom doorway brandishing a black-handled Stanley knife that he'd produced from the right pocket of his jacket. She was later to describe the man stood in the doorway as being white, young, she estimated about 19 to 20 years old, approximately 5 feet 10 inches tall, of medium build and having mousy brown hair, wearing cheap-looking faded jeans, a t-shirt and a brown Harrington-style jacket. She couldn't offer a fuller description of the man's facial features because his lower face was covered with a patterned beige-coloured cloth secured around his head, though she did offer from the limited dialogue exchanged between him and her that he had a southeast London accent. She said later, My door started to open and there was a man standing there. He was medium build with mousy hair. I thought he was a burglar at first, but then he pulled out a knife and something made me realise he wasn't a burglar. Standing up, startled at the intruder's presence, he ordered Julia onto the bed, and pressed a cloth that he produced from his pocket over her face, ostensibly to silence her, although her fear made that unnecessary. Mindful of her children downstairs, with their protection in mind, Julia pleaded with the intruder to close the bedroom door, so they wouldn't hear what was going on which he complied with. After ordering her to lie face up, pulling a t-shirt over her face, the man secured it around her head with a section of wire or flex that he fastened across her eyes. The intruder asked her name, which out of fear she gave to him, and he then proceeded to remove Julia's underwear before raping her at knife point. Although during the act the rapist didn't manage a full erection, he did manage to rape her, and almost immediately ejaculated. Before leaving, the rapist undid the tie across Julia's eyes, dragged her off the bed and told her to stand in the corner, counting to 20. As he left, he said to Julia, Do you want a bit of advice? Don't leave your back door open. The man then made his way back downstairs, calmly past her two children, still in the living room, oblivious and transfixed to the TV, and was away through the back door. When the man had headed out of her bedroom and downstairs, Julia made her way to the rear bedroom of the house, where through the window she saw him exit the back garden through the insecure chain-link garden fencing onto the open scrubland behind the house and then across Wind Common Road onto Wind's Common, where she soon lost sight of him. She then went downstairs, where to her relief her children were unharmed. Attempting to telephone police, she found that the telephone cord to her phone had been slashed. So gathering her children, Julia rushed to a neighbour's house to raise the alarm. Police immediately responded, and whilst the search of the Winds Common area was made, house-to-house inquiries in the Purrit Road area got underway. But the rapist was long gone, and there was little to go on resulting from these initial inquiries. Nobody had been seen loitering around the area at the crucial time. No one else bar Julia had seen the man leaving the property, 
and analysis of the crime scene revealed no workable fingerprints or forensic traces of the rapist. The description of the rapist was also vague, although through no fault of Julia's of course, and investigators soon came to the conclusion that this had been a stranger rape. He was certainly not someone who Julia had seen beforehand or that she knew, plus he had also asked her what her name was. But then he certainly seemed to know who she was, or rather, that she was a single mother, an adult in the house alone. Raping someone indoors must carry a massive risk to an offender. I mean, there could have been a 20 stone hulking husband or a partner there to batter him into the middle of next week if the man had chosen a house and a victim at random. Had the rapist watched the house beforehand long enough to know that the occupant was an attractive blonde single mum with the only other people in the property being two small children and he'd selected Julia because she was a prime target for him. The house, as we've said, backed onto a part of Wynn's Common where there was ample view of the back garden from a copse of birch trees. A perfect spot for a predator to watch from. And police did have one crucial piece of evidence. Following the rape, when she was taken to hospital for examination, samples were taken from Julia that revealed the presence of semen that was sent away for DNA analysis, resulting in a positive DNA profile of the rapist being raised. However, when this profile was analysed, it didn't match any known entry that police had in the criminal index, which back in 1989 was nowhere near what it is today it being some six years before the implementation of the National DNA Database. It was frustrating because there was a dangerous rapist out there who was brazen enough to attack indoors, regardless of the presence of children, at knife point, and you have to get people like that off the streets because if they've gone far enough to do that successfully, then they will strike again. But despite police having the rapist's description and his genetic profile, the hunt for him rapidly got nowhere. Once all known sex offenders in the area were questioned and individually and systematically ruled out of the inquiry, including those known to have erectile dysfunction, there was little more that police could do aside from the unenviable task of waiting for the individual to strike again and hoping that this time he was positively identified before he could rape again or the best possible case of course, was caught before someone else was attacked. This disgusting assault on Julia was to be the first reported attack by an individual who, over the next few years, would go on to become a prolific sexual offender in the South London area. The full extent of the offences he's responsible for will never likely be known, but is estimated to have possibly reached triple figures. But horrific enough as this has sounded, and you've got to agree here what a terrifying vile attack this must have been, this man was to go on from this to commit far, far worse offences, as we shall come to see throughout the next few episodes. Although police did investigate as thoroughly as possible, when all avenues of inquiry were exhausted, the hunt for Julia's attacker soon ground to a halt and the inquiry was filed under the active with regular reviews list. Then, more than two and a half years later, on Tuesday the 10th of March 1992, there was another attack upon a young woman whom we shall call Susan, and this time six miles away from Purrit Road, on the Cordwell Estate in the London borough of Lewisham. 
17-year-old Susan had just gotten off a bus at the junction of Lehigh Road and Abernathy Road on her way to meet a friend, when at about 8.45pm in Cordwell Road, as she approached an alleyway that led from Northbrook Road onto the Cordwell Estate, she became aware of a man walking behind her. He was heading in the same general direction as she was, but on the opposite side of the road several yards behind. As it was early March, it was dark by this time, and as Susan had turned into the alleyway and had covered about three quarters of its length, she heard the sound of running footsteps behind her, which then slowed to a very fast walk. Concerned, because who wouldn't be by hearing that, she looked over her shoulder to see the same man she'd seen moments before, now walking behind her, about ten yards behind her. Susan exited the alleyway and crossed the small unlit courtyard towards a second alley very near to her friend's house, and as she did so, the man broke off from walking behind her and ran towards a row of lock-up garages to the right, disappearing behind them. Increasing her pace because she was proper alarmed now, as she had just passed the garages, Susan was suddenly grabbed from behind by her right arm, and being roughly spun around, was confronted by the man she'd seen just seconds before. In his right hand, she saw the glint of a knife which was pointed towards her, very close to her stomach. Menacingly, he told her, If you want to live, don't make any noise. At knife point, he then dragged the terrified girl back to the row of garages, and pinned her up against the wall. He tried to kiss her on the mouth, which she resisted, and told her to undo her jacket, which she refused to do. Upon this refusal, her attacker forced up her upper clothing and then viciously, indecently assaulted her. At the slightest sign of any resistance from Susan, the tip of the knife was pressed into her stomach as a chilling reminder and she was told menacingly, Shut up. If you want to live, be quiet. Without warning, he then swiftly and viciously attacked the girl striking her hard with his fist several times across her left cheek, causing her head to smash quite hard off the pebble-dash garage wall. As she was dazed from this blow, the attacker then pulled down Susan's lower clothing and pushed her roughly to the floor, lowering his own jeans and underwear as he prepared to rape her. But he failed to achieve an erection and did not manage to commit a full rape, instead ejaculating almost immediately over her jeans. Suddenly, the traumatised victim was later to claim the man seemed distracted, looking off to the left and standing up. Pulling his underwear and jeans up, he then viciously kicked Susan hard in the head six or seven times, making contact with her hands as she tried to ward off the blows. He then walked away and headed off towards the alley, soon disappearing out of sight. Moments later, Susan regained her footing and rearranging her clothing, managed to stagger hurriedly the short distance to her friend's house nearby, where in a state of obvious distress and shock, she managed to blurt out what had happened and the alarm was raised. When examined shortly afterwards by Dr. Claire Roden, the police medical doctor, apart from being in a state of severe shock, Susan was found to have a badly cut mouth requiring stitching and the left side of her face and head was severely swollen and already horribly bruised from the vicious attack. She managed to describe her attacker as being a white male, aged about 20 to 25 years of age, 5 feet 8 inches tall and of a stocky build with dark brown straight hair 
and wearing a black Harrington jacket with faded blue jeans. She remembered that he was brown-eyed, had a clean, acne-free complexion, and from the short amount of speech that she'd heard from him, that he had a southeast London accent. Samples were obtained from Susan, and her clothing was sent to the police laboratory for forensic examination. The examination revealed the presence of semen from where the would-be rapist had ejaculated over Susan's jeans. An analysis from the swab taken from this was to obtain a DNA profile that was strong enough that should the man be identified, there was a less than 1 in 1.3 million chance that it would belong to a person chosen at random from the Caucasian population rather than the would-be rapist. The DNA profile obtained from the attacker although it didn't match any identified samples on file, did match an unidentified one, the one that had been obtained from the Purit Road attack on Julia in her home two and a half years previously. The rapist had now, to police knowledge, struck twice. And within eight days of this second known attack, he was to strike for a third time. And we shall continue the episode following a short word from this week's sponsors of the show, Noom. Now the current climate has never made it more important to look after your health and what leads to lasting change and well-being for life is establishing healthier habits. Now you may have a variety of reasons for wanting to do so. Perhaps your clothes are starting to look like the Hulk could rip out of them but you haven't a clue where or how to start eating right or perhaps you've tried dieting in the past but it hasn't worked for you and you're thinking of trying a different tack. And that different tack is where this week's sponsor of the show comes in, the health app Noom, that you can sign up for a trial of today at noom.com, that's n-o-o-m.com forward slash true crime. Noom is a psychology-based health app rather than a strict diet plan, so it doesn't just tell you what foods are a no-no or a go-go. What it does is recognises that everyone's different and adjusts to your own personal lifestyle. Instead, it will help you understand the psychology behind your lifestyle decisions with food and exercise, whilst also teaching you the tools and skills you need to swap any bad habits with better ones. And with Noom, it helps you keep a track of everything, from analysing your diet and recommending your healthy recipes to try, to logging your meals, your step counts and your workouts. I signed up with Noom because I wanted to look after myself more in general, not just for weight loss or for more energy because I've gone from butch to too much, but for that bit more of an all-around general glow. So I downloaded the free app, chose my plan, and within 15 minutes I was away. I found it very fluid, the app's slick and easy to use, which I always like, and by being straight and honest with it about your lifestyle, you'll come to understand the psychology behind your lifestyle choices which will then help you to make better ones. You're guided and supported through all of this with the personally assigned goal specialists and as part of a community of fellow Noomers, so you're supported all of the way through on both sides. And it takes up just 10 minutes of your day. Now I'm a few days into my plan and I'm already seeing the difference. I'm thinking differently, choosing healthier and have found how simple it is to keep track of what and how much you eat and to log it on Noom's massive and accurate food database. It's even spurring me on to push for some extra steps each day. Great, eh? What have you got to lose? To help develop a healthier, easy-to-stick lifestyle for you, visit noom.com forward slash truecrime to start your trial today. That's noom.com forward slash truecrime to start a healthier you. 
we shall now continue with the episode. The site of the next attack was just three and a half miles from where Susan's terrifying ordeal had occurred in an area known as Vista Field, just off a footpath named King John's Walk, which stretches from the southeast London district of Eltham to the district of Mottingham. At about 8pm in the evening, another 17-year-old, who we shall refer to as Leanne, had had a family argument and had stormed out of the house to go for a walk and to cool down. The walk had taken her from her home along Elton Palace Road and onto King John's Walk, along which she'd headed south and onto a particular section of the lane with no street lighting, where she'd stopped to gather her thoughts whilst gazing at the distant lights of Canary Wharf and Crystal Palace Tower. As for the attack on Susan, Leanne heard footsteps behind her, turned and saw a man walking towards her along the path. She put her head down to avoid eye contact with him, but as the man passed her, something about him made her feel instantly uncomfortable. She was so uncomfortable with this encounter that she decided to rapidly walk back the way she'd come and stopping again to check after she'd gone a certain distance, saw the man in the distance continuing to walk away from her. It was at this point that she made what was to be a fateful decision to detour across Fisterfield and head westwards across here to her parents' house, which although it was dark by this time, was a shortcut home for her. She'd only gone a short distance across Fisterfield when she was suddenly confronted on the path by the same man who had passed her and unnerved her so, although this time he was wearing a balaclava, but one with the face part open which I never saw the point of, to be honest. He was also brandishing a knife with a six-inch blade, and menacingly, but with odd choice of expressions, and in what was described later as a somewhat flat tone of voice, he told her, Get down on your knees. I've got this, and I'll use it. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to screw you. I just want to put my tongue in your mouth. I want to kiss you. Forcing Leanne backwards at knife point and then forcing her to the ground on her back. The man knelt down between her legs, raised the knife and pushed the blade hard against her left breast, hard enough to cause a puncture wound that drew blood that leaked and stained her bra. He drew the blade away and then lifting up her upper clothing and underwear, lay on top of her and performed a sex act upon her before asking her to go down on him, to which she feigned ignorance. He then threatened her by saying, shut up or I'll knock you out. And at the same time as he'd raised his clenched fist, he stripped Leanne of her lower clothing. Lowering his own clothing, the man attempted to rape her, but as with previous attacks in the series, he couldn't manage an erection, although Leanne's terrifying ordeal continued. Almost as though he was angry with himself for this, as much as his misplaced anger towards her, Several times during the attempted rape, the attacker told her, This will go in, I will do it. He even asked Leanne such things as, Does it feel nice? Are you a virgin? Can you feel me inside you? You don't even want to imagine that, do you? Isn't that absolutely foul? Despicable. When he eventually gave up and stopped this degrading spectacle, he rose back into a kneeling position and terrifyingly placed the large knife between her legs with the point raised towards her vagina. He then told Leanne, you could have got this. He then moved the knife upwards from this point and then trailed it up and down her body, 
until he moved it upwards and began stroking it between her chin and her breasts, saying nothing as he did so. Eventually tiring of this, leaving his traumatised victim bleeding on the floor, dishevelled and too scared to even speak, her attacker got to his feet, redressed and walked off, back across Vista Field and onto King John's Walk. When she was sure he was gone, Leanne hurriedly dressed and made her way to the sanctuary of a nearby shop, helped there by two youths who'd seen her fleeing in distress and from where police were informed. Leanne was to require hospital treatment for shock and for the knife wound to her left breast, a puncture wound that was half an inch wide and a quarter of an inch deep. Horrific, terrifying stuff that, isn't it? Again, a similar description of the attacker in the previous two attacks was obtained, which went on to create an artist's impression used in an appeal poster that if you head over to the show's Instagram page, is reproduced there. It depicts an attacker who was white, about 5 feet 7 inches tall, of slim build, with light brown collar length hair, and aged between 19 and his early 20s. Present also was the now familiar South London accent, but in this case, Leanne offered that when he spoke, as we said before, he had a strange inflection in his voice, as though he were in an interview. As with the previous attacks, an examination of Leanne's clothing again produced a DNA sample which was obtained from seminal fluid that had been left by her attacker, and once again, when it was analysed, it proved to be a match for the two already established earlier attacks. So now it was established that there was a serial sex attacker operating within the southeast London area who was targeting and attacking women in what were becoming increasingly violent assaults, both indoors and outdoors, and a joint inquiry, given the codename Operation Eccleston, was established and ran out of Elton Police Station in an operation to identify and catch the rapist. They had a relatively good overall general description and a working hypothesis that they were looking for a rapist either from or with good local knowledge of the southeast London area. The accent and the geographical pattern of the attack swayed this, but the clincher, the absolute mutts nuts of evidence that they had. The rapist had shown either no awareness of or no concern about leaving any forensic evidence behind him, and as a result, they had a full DNA profile of the rapist from semen he'd left at the scene of each attack. However, at this time, back in 1992, DNA samples were not taken as a matter of routine from people being taken into police custody, only from convicted criminals and those who were charged and awaiting trial. And the science of DNA, although it was a course there, was still far from becoming the effective, ever-developing evidential tool that it is today. But any match would of course be dependent upon the Shytalk having been arrested and convicted of a different offence. But the rapist wasn't on any police database. And the sequence of foul attacks continued. Two months after Leanne's horrific ordeal, once again on the same footpath, King John's Walk, and at 2pm on the bank holiday afternoon of Sunday the 24th of May 1992, a 22-year-old woman we'll call Cathy was walking from Eltham towards Mottingham on her way to a family barbecue, pushing a buggy in which her two-year-old daughter sat. Some distance ahead of her, she noticed a man cross the footpath from the right side to the left and disappear from view. But unconcerned, 
she continued along the pathway until she'd passed the spot where she'd last seen the man. Suddenly, Kathy heard the patter of running footsteps behind her, and as she turned to look, saw that the man had reappeared behind her, and she felt something pass over her head, a ligature that was immediately tightened around her neck. Instinctively, she let go of the buggy and clawed at the cord, trying to loosen it, before a voice from behind her ordered her to place her hands behind her back. Complying out of fear, as she did so, the cord around her neck was relaxed. Despite her pleas to leave her alone because of her daughter, Kathy found herself roughly thrown to the ground, where she was struck several times viciously about the head and body, leaving her bloody and dazed. The attacker then tried forcibly to remove her upper clothing, but she resisted, earning her another vicious blow to the face. He then pulled down Kathy's shorts and underwear and his own lower clothing, during which Kathy was to notice that he was wearing old-fashioned Y-front-style underpants. After masturbating between her legs for some time, the man attempted raping her, but true to the previous attacks in the series, had difficulty in achieving a full erection. He did eventually manage to commit a full rape on this occasion, before suddenly standing up, pulling up his own lower clothing, and running off back along the path in the northwards direction of Eltham. Covered in blood from her wounds, Kathy somehow managed to stagger with her crying daughter along the rest of her journey along the King John's Walk footpath to nearby Middle Park Avenue, where she collapsed at the door of her mother-in-law's house. So dishevelled, battered and bloodstained was she, that at first, when she'd knocked on the door, her own mother-in-law hadn't even recognised her. When taken to hospital a short time later, Kathy was found to have suffered severe and extreme bruising to her head and upper body following the attack, including a severe injury to the area of the right eye orbit that caused loss of vision in that eye, which was to require corrective laser treatment. In Kathy's statement to police, she described the rapist as being white, slim with short mousy-coloured brown hair, and aged between 26 and 30 years old. He had discoloured, uneven teeth she remembered, and an acne-scarred face. He was wearing a plain t-shirt, blue shorts and light grey socks, although she couldn't recall what type of footwear he had on. Now there's an amend to this description that's never satisfactorily been explained, however. Whilst at her mother-in-law's waiting for the police to arrive, Kathy had told her mother-in-law that her attacker was, quote, really tall, a description that she echoed to the first police officer on the scene, PC Simon Fleming, when asked by him, how tall was he? Was he as tall as me? I'm six foot three. Kathy had replied, yeah, about your height. Unfortunately, when later describing her attacker at interview, she changed the estimate of the attacker's height from what she'd told her mother-in-law and the police officer to being only five foot seven inches tall. Now this amend could be for any number of reasons, it could be self-doubt or shock, but as the investigation continued, this amend was to prove crucial and misleading, which I'm sure you'll come to see as the episode arc progresses. Once again, swabs were taken from Kathy and forensic examination of her clothing revealed the presence of semen, allowing a full DNA profile of the rapist to be obtained. Once again, the profile matched no one on police files, and once again, the profile matched that of the semen that had been recovered from the previous three attacks. 
or the previous attacks that police knew about anyway, the ones that had been reported. There'd been a significant gap between the first reported attack that could be linked to the rapist, the 1989 rape of Julia in a house in Purit Road, and the latter three attacks as described here, which had all taken place within a three-month period, but more than two and a half years after Julia's rape. It raised a number of questions. Why had the rapist changed his modus operandi and gone from attacking indoors to remaining outdoors? The latter three women attacked were also considerably younger than the first that could be attributed to this man and were opportunistic attacks, whereas it was considered that he'd watched Julia for a period of time. There was also the matter of the two and a half year gap between the attacks. Why had the rapist stopped for such a period of time? Now people, if you can call them people, because I don't see personally any humanity in sex offenders what, like such as this whatsoever, I despise, I really do despise them from the pit of me. People who have such warped desires that they need to commit horrific acts such as these because it excites them surely can't just put a lid on it for too long. And you don't expect a knife point rapist to be in a happy relationship, do you? But he hadn't been in prison over this period, there was no matching DNA on file. Had he been in a hospital, or had he moved away? Had the rapist attacked others, perhaps elsewhere within the Metropolitan District, or even within the areas outlying London, such as Surrey or Kent? Perhaps there were sexual attacks or offences committed by the same man, which had never been reported. Perhaps his victims were too afraid or ashamed to, or perhaps he was a flasher or a peeping Tom, and his victims had preferred to just shrug it off or tell him where to go. All similar sexual attacks in these areas over the time period between 1989 and 1992 were looked at, but nothing could be definitively pinpointed to being likely to have been committed by the same man. Although by this time the latter three attacks had been widespread publicised with strong press interest, Police patrols within the Elton, Mottingham and Plumstead areas had been stepped up and a suspect pool was created based upon correlated similarities between the descriptions from the four definite crimes that could be linked forensically to the rapist. He was still out there with his attacks increasing in violence. Police from the Operation Eccleston team were left with a despairing thought that this man could strike again at any time. And chillingly, the frequency at which the attacks had escalated left it seemingly only a matter of time before he would. So the team decided to widen the scope of the inquiry and utilise the expertise of an offender profiler. Now I'm sure many of you guys listening will have watched Mindhunter and names like Robert Ressler and John Douglas will be familiar figures to any true crime buff for their groundbreaking profiling work in the FBI Behavioural Sciences Unit. But back in 1992, in the UK, offender profiling wasn't the subject of countless films or TV series in fiction, nor the well-used real-life tool available to police as it is today. That isn't to say it hadn't been used, because it had, very notably before Operation Eccleston in British criminal history, of course. But that's maybe a tale for another time here on the show, that one. Well, there's no maybe about it. It definitely is. Big spoiler alert there but it had begun to come to public awareness a bit more around the early 1990s, thanks to the success of films such as Silence of the Lambs and TV series such as Cracker. Now as a bit of a side note here, we used to call a friend of mine Cracker actually, 
not because he was brilliantly intuitive or anything, but because, like Robbie Coltrane's character in the series, he was a quite fat chap at the time who drank and smoked heavily. Kids are cruel, aren't they? What can I say? It was a good show, Cracker was, if you've never watched it, especially the memorable multi-part episode with Robert Carlyle as a murderous Liverpool supporter. It maybe does look a bit dated now, but have a look if you've not seen it. Operation Eccleston then went and employed the services of a profiler and brought in a figure who will feature quite prominently within this series story arc, not just here in the opener of it, but in future episodes of the arc also, a consultant clinical psychologist named Paul Britton. After initial consultation and meetings with the Operation Eccleston team in September 1992, plus obtaining and studying copies of the case file of each forensically linked attack to work from, in October of that year, Paul Britton produced a profile of the rapist with the following pointers. He would most likely be aged between 18 and 25 years and unlikely to be over 28. He would be of low to average intelligence and would not have performed well academically. If he was employed, it would be in an intellectually undemanding or a manual role. His work may have been within a group setting, but if so, he would shun female colleagues. Any female friends that he may have had would be much younger than him, seen as less threatening and more easily impressed. He was a reckless risk taker who whilst offending was relatively unconcerned about being apprehended, and he derived satisfaction from the fear that he instilled in his victims. And it was clear from the offence style that interaction with certain victim responses could easily lead to life-changing injury or death. He expressed considerable rage and anger, there were indications that he was taunting the police, and he would highly likely be known to police covering the areas of the assault, possibly as a burglar, and had connections to the area by either by residence, schooling or employment. He may have had a background of less serious offending, i.e. indecent exposure or voyeurism, and may have also moved away from the area between the first and second offences. He was likely to suffer from the following, sexual deviant fantasy and sexual dysfunction in the form of erectile problems, primary premature ejaculation, and inability to sustain heterosexual relationships. He would bring himself to attention in one of three ways, by being caught during an offence, by information provided by the public or area police officers, or by process of elimination based upon an examination of records. He was extremely dangerous and would continue to offend, and may escalate his violence according to victim reaction. The victims in each case, although they were of little physical similarity, could be regarded as having similar signs of vulnerability. Finally, in summary, the profile suggested a full re-examination of the first indoor rape scene, together with a visit to all surrounding householders and neighbours. Britain believed that it was this first attributed attack, the only one of the series indoors, that could hold the most pointers as to the psyche of the offender. A month after this profile had been delivered, an appeal concerning the series of rapes was made on good or what? Yep, Crime Watch UK. The first time this series, I think, that we've mentioned Crime Watch as well. And I'm sure that you'll be pleased, perhaps even somewhat relieved, I don't know, 
to know that I haven't changed my opinion of the BBC at all. There's still twats for first buggering about with the format of Crime Watch and then eventually cancelling it. But back in November 1992, when it was still going strong, a reconstruction was made that focused upon all of the known attacks, with most focus given to the first and fourth attacks, that of Julia and Cathy. Now Julia and Cathy actually even bravely appear in the appeal, albeit in silhouette of course, with their words spoken by someone else. In the episode show notes this week is a link to the November 1992 episode of Crime Watch that this appeared on, one of the ones added by that legend Redcard74, so you guys can have a look for yourselves at it. Now the episode does mention three other sightings and incidents that police believed may have been connected. Three days after the fourth attack, a woman out with her dogs only a short distance further along the same footpath was confronted by a man of a similar description to the rapist who unnerved her, although he fled when the woman's dogs barked at him. Then on the 8th of September, a teenage boy out rollerblading in the Eltham area met a man walking towards him, again of similar description to the rapist. The man approached the boy and opened his leather jacket to reveal he was displaying a copy of the appeal poster concerning the rapes. See that? That's me, he told the boy. It was off home like a meatloaf song following this interaction. And on the 12th of October, a woman pushing a buggy across Winds Common at about 10pm at night was worried by a man that she'd spotted on a park bench a short distance ahead of her. So unnerved was she about this man that she asked a couple parked in a car nearby to watch her as she went. They agreed to, and as she passed the bench where the man was sat, he got up and attempted to follow her only making off in the other direction when the headlights of the car shone on him. But there were other incidents that police considered could possibly be sightings of and an attempt by the same man that weren't mentioned on the Crime Watch appeal and that had occurred within a two-week period in August of that year. Firstly, just after 6pm on the evening of Wednesday the 19th of August 1992, a young unnamed woman left the Queen Elizabeth Hospital on Stadium Road in Woolwich and walked from there across Woolwich Common to a bus stop in nearby Academy Road, where she waited to catch her usual southbound bus towards Eltham. She was the only person at the stop when a man appeared and joined her there, a man she later described as being white, about 5 foot 9 inches tall, of slim build with short medium length brown hair worn in a parting on the left side. He was aged about 25 to 30 years old, wearing a bright red t-shirt, blue denim jeans that were cut off below the knee and trainers and had a complexion which she described as grubby, a pockmarked long thin face, staring eyes and what she described as sad looking lips and dirty uneven and bad teeth that she noticed from when he spoke to her. In a South London accent, using speech that the woman described as being delivered pronounced in a careful way. The man asked her if he could head up nearby Academy Road, asking in an inquiring way, as if to suggest he wasn't sure whether or not that this road was military property, part of the old Royal Arsenal in Woolwich. She told him that Academy Road was fine for public access, and watched as he walked off in the direction of Eltham. However, after about 10 minutes of waiting and with still no bus having arrived, the woman looked up to see the same man returning from the direction he'd headed in. 
He stopped when he drew level with a bus stop and told her, You can't go up the hill. When asked why not, he said, There are dead bodies up there. Someone has been dragged to their death. Now this made the woman start to worry because it's an unnerving weird thing to say that, isn't it? There were just the two of them there and after saying this, the man had started to draw closer to her. At that moment, a bus arrived at the stop and although it wasn't the designated bus the woman was waiting for, nevertheless she got on it trying to get away from this oddball. As she sat down and breathed a sigh of relief because the man had stayed on the footpath, this turned to discomfort when at the last moment, the very last moment just before the bus doors had shut, he jumped onto the bus. He then made his way close to where she was sat and made it uncomfortable by continuing to stare at her as the bus set off. As the bus passed Shooters Hill Police Station, the woman took a chance and got off using the side door of the bus, only to note that the strange man had also gotten off through the front entry door and begun to follow her. By now thoroughly alarmed, the woman walked quickly towards the lights of nearby Shooters Hill Police Station, and upon seeing her do this, the man suddenly broke and ran off across Eltham Common, where the woman watched until she lost sight of him as he disappeared into the woods behind the former Welcome Inn public house that bordered Wellhall Road. She never saw the man again, and although he'd unnerved her, hadn't actually done anything to her. It was only a short time after this incident, however, that she spotted the appeal poster concerning the rapes and was immediately struck by the similarity between the artist's impression of the rapist and the strange man she'd encountered on Academy Road. So struck was she by this likeness that she contacted police to report that she believed the man she'd encountered and the artist's impression of the rapist were one and the same person. Had the rapist been thwarted from attacking again? Less than two weeks after this woman's encounter, there was an incident in Elmstead Woods which was about a mile south of the previous attacks. In the mid-morning of Sunday the 30th of August, a 47-year-old teacher was walking her dogs here when in a clearing off the main footpath, she encountered a young man who passed her and blocked the way in front of her. The woman noticed him rubbing his erect penis through his trousers before he grabbed the dog chain she had hung around her neck and began pulling her towards him with it. He managed to wrestle her to the ground against a nearby tree, but then abandoned the assault and fled, ostensibly because the woman believed her dog had bitten her attacker on the ankle. The description she later gave police was very similar to that of the rapist, and when she was shown the artist's impression, she confirmed it was the same man, before furthering this by adding that he appeared to her to have had mild learning difficulties. Two days later, an administration officer working in the Operation Eccleston incident room encountered a man of a similar description in a side street near to the station who had followed her when, at about 7pm, she went to move her car from a nearby side street. He had in fact ran off when she started the car, but she noticed as he ran off that he was holding a long, indeterminate object within a striped plastic carrier bag. Although a search of the area got underway immediately upon the woman reporting this, the man was never found. Now only a week later came the sighting by the lad who was out rollerblading, which meant if it was the same man, and although it looked like the suspect, it could of course have just been some fantasist, the rapist was taking a perverse pleasure and pride in his crimes 
and may have even been spurred on by the publicity. And was this pleasure heightened for him by homing in upon the hunt for him being led from Elton Police Station? Yet by the incidents described after the 1992 spree, those confirmed sex attacks by the same man, there had been no further reported confirmed attacks since the attack on Cathy on the 24th of May. Crime doesn't wait around, of course, does it? Officers were always required for ever more pressing and current investigations, and the senior investigating officer of Eccleston, Detective Superintendent Steve Landerhew, faced pressure to scale down the inquiry. As it was a major inquiry, Eccleston had an account registered on the police force Holmes IT system that could instantly be reopened should another attack occur or a suspect arise. And perhaps it's the wrong word to use here, but a policy decision was made to implement a shortcut system to eliminate potential suspects, thus freeing up personnel and accelerating shutting down Operation Eccleston. And the criteria to do this? Now the Yorkshire Ripper investigation hopefully needs no introduction here. If it does and you've never heard of the Yorkshire Ripper, what, where on earth have you been? And if so, then I'm sure you can all recall the fateful decision that was made by senior officers investigating the Ripper to focus upon the Geordie connection and to eliminate anyone from the inquiry who didn't have a northeast accent. And we all know how well that worked, don't we? Although all four women who were confirmed forensically to have been assaulted by the same man had offered very similar physical descriptions of him, the first three attacked by what was now known as the Green Chain Rapist, Julia, Susan and Leanne, had each described their assailant as being around the 5 foot 7 to 5 foot 10 inches tall mark, whereas the fourth woman who was assaulted, Kathy, had firstly described her attacker to both her mother-in-law and a police officer first responder as being well over six feet tall. Yet she'd later amended this description to a rapist being around five foot seven inches tall in height for reasons that are unknown or unrevealed. Taking the reported heights of all four into account, it was now decided by senior officers to eliminate any suspect who was less than five foot five inches tall in height and more than six foot. Now this criteria to eliminate suspects had been in place before Paul Britton analysed the case files and created a profile of the rapist and before the appeal had been made on Crime Watch UK. It was very firmly in mind when two detectives from Eccleston knocked on the door of 189 Well Hall Road, very near to Eltham Common, on the 28th of August 1992 to speak to the occupant of one of the flats there. The occupant's name had been forwarded to the incident room by two separate people as matching the description of the rapist and upon detectives speaking to the occupant, a cooperative and unflustered man who, upon checking, had some previous criminal history but nothing of a sexual nature, they asked him to attend Elton Police Station five days later to give a blood sample for elimination purposes, to which he agreed. However, he failed to appear at the station on this date and so the following day, one of the detectives forwarded a letter to the occupant, informing him to attend the station for a blood sample on the next available time slot, 7.30pm on the 8th of September. He did not, however, attend this second time either. Now, although you and I would think, yeah, it's dodgy this, hey, if you've got nothing to hide, what's your problem? 
People could refuse on many grounds, and it was after all simply a request. When supervising officers assessed this non-attendance, they looked at the characteristics of the man and then made the decision to eliminate him from the inquiry based upon the policy decision that they'd made. No further action to revisit him was made because he was 6 foot 1 inches tall. When the occupant who had refused the blood tests, we won't be meeting him just yet through the arc, was arrested for another much more serious offence two years after the last known rape. His DNA was taken as a result and it was only from here that he was identified as being the green chain rapist. The DNA samples that had been recovered from all four of the attacks that have been described here matched his sample with chances ranging from a less than 1 in 1.3 million to a less than 1 in 8 million chance of them belonging to anyone else. The women who were attacked in the latter three cases described here were also to pick him out of an identity parade unhesitatingly, whilst Julia, the first woman attacked, couldn't be certain. So police now had banged to rights a brutal serial sex attacker, but by that time, the cooperative, unflustered man was at least, I stress that, at least, a triple killer also, responsible for some of the most horrific crimes we will have ever covered here on The Enthusiast, and which we shall get to because there's a long old haul here in this tale yet. And with that, the opening part of this fifth series multi-episode arc concludes, but as I say, there's a rook to go with the story yet, and it isn't one for the faint-hearted. Now I may time jump somewhat through further episodes, and you may think that there are a chronology of the rest of the tale, but there is a reasoning for that, and plus it's my show and I can do what I bloody well want, of course can I. We shall continue with the tale next time here on the True Crime Enthusiast, which I'm off to go putting the finishing touches to right now. I thank you all very much for joining me here today for the first episode in the Maniac Multiparter, and all that's left for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, wishing you guys safe times, really, really do. Keep safe and keep indoors, folks, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care and goodbye for now.